Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. I'm Stephanie Ratte, a first-year student at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, and I'm excited to welcome Governor Christine Todd Whitman, former governor of New Jersey and EPA administrator who currently leads the Clean and Safe Energy Coalition. CASE is a national grassroots organization that supports the increased use of nuclear energy to ensure an affordable, environmentally clean, reliable, and safe supply of electricity. Governor Whitman served in the cabinet of President George W. Bush as administrator of the EPA from 2001 to 2003. She was the 50th governor of New Jersey, serving as its first woman governor from 1994 until 2001. Since leaving the EPA, Governor Whitman has served as president of the Whitman Strategy Group, a consulting firm that specializes in energy and environmental issues. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Um, can you tell us a little bit about CASE's work and why you think nuclear energy is so important for America's energy future? Certainly. Uh, CASE is about informing people, giving people information they need in order to make a r- rational, reasoned dis- decision on what kind of energy mix they want. I came to CASE both because as I had been the president of the State's Board of Public Utilities in New Jersey, so I knew nuclear. I was familiar with nuclear in- the nuclear industry, and I had visited a reactor, so I was comfortable with it as a form of energy. And as I grow increasingly concerned about climate change and clean air, uh, it's drawn me to nuclear even more. Uh, Along with the renewables, along with wind and and solar and hydro, we need base power because those things only work when the sun is shining or the wind is blowing. They're getting better, but they're not there yet. And the biggest producer now we have of clean energy is nuclear. It's the only form of base power that does not release any greenhouse gases or other regulated pollutants uh, into the atmosphere. It's only 19%, just under 20% of the nation's overall energy, but it's better than 60% of our clean energy. So it boxes way outside its weight class. It hits way above its weight class, and that to me is important. The role of CASE is just to try to answer people's questions, not to lobby them to say you have to have nuclear because it's not a silver bullet, but to help educate them because we haven't done much with nuclear recently and uh, to help educate them and say, okay, here are your choices. These are the kinds of things you have to consider when you're considering how do we meet these issues of climate change and clean air. So what do you think are some of the obstacles for nuclear energy development in the U.S. currently, and how do you think these can be overcome? And in particular, can you talk us through where the U.S. stands in terms of problems with and solutions for nuclear waste disposal and storage? Sure. Right now, um, there are five new reactors being built in the United States. Uh, There are two in Georgia, two in South Carolina, one the Tennessee Valley Authority is is building. So we are starting to see some movement, but the biggest obstacle, and there are four more that are are probably going to go forward soon, but the biggest obstacle is the low cost of natural gas. Uh, That has impacted the economic decision of the utilities. The problem there is, first of all, it's, it's certainly natural gas is a lot cleaner than coal, but it's not nearly as clean as, as nuclear. It does release emissions while it's producing power. And also, we've been here before. Where we've had low natural gas prices, and then they've gone up. And uh, I think you always have to be very careful of putting all your eggs in one basket, but it is certainly the economic considerations as much as anything that are stopping uh, nuclear. Right before the fracking boom, you had about 19 consortium that we're looking at some 14 new reactors. And those are still there at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, but they're not being pushed, and that's for for economic reasons. 
The storage issue actually is one that, in order to explain it accurately, I always like to get back to the beginning to say, if you took all the spent nuclear rods that we have in this country from the over 100 reactors we've had operating over 50 years, we have about 90 operating now, and stack them end to end, you'd fill up one football field to the height of the goalposts. So that's not something the size of the state of Maine, which a lot of people have in their minds. And what's in those spent rods is not a gas, they're pellets. It's not a liquid, it's not a gas, they're pellets. And so while you wouldn't want to be anywhere near them, were they to be fractured, it's not going to release a mushroom cloud into the air or a sudden great release into the water, which is important to understand. That's not to say that you ever want that kind of thing to happen. So when you start from that premise, you then say, right now they're being stored safely on site of the reactors. Most of them now are in above-ground concrete steel-reinforced bunkers. For every ton of nuclear material, there are 10 tons of concrete and steel around them. And they're being held safely, but that's not optimum. And the Congress decided that a long time ago. They identified a site out in New Mexico, in our, uh, New Mexico. no, Nevada, sorry. I'm going blank on that one, um, in Yucca Mountain, Nevada. And it's politics that has stopped that, not science that has stopped that being moved forward. But the other thing is that right now in those rods is between 95 and 97 percent usable energy, fissionable material. In France and Japan, they have worked on reprocessing or recycling, and they can reduce that to 3 to 5 percent and also ensure that it can never be used in a nuclear weapon. So it's... That's really where we need to start to go. But again, it's about the economics and whether it's worth the investment right now for the utilities to figure out how to extract that unused energy that's just sitting there. I think eventually we're going to have to do it. Eventually we're going to we're looking at a 22% increase in electricity demand by 2040 anyway in this country alone. So that means utilities have to have made decisions yesterday because of the capital cost and the long time it takes to get any form of, of base energy up and running. Right. Um, and so you mentioned the politics of it. Can you talk about, so what is the political landscape of nuclear energy today? today, And what are some of the responses you see from both the political right and left? Well, actually, it's not a partisan issue. Um, energy isn't a partisan issue. Climate change isn't a partisan issue. I mean, it, it, clean air certainly isn't a partisan issue. Climate change has become more so with the Republicans just digging in and saying it humans have no role to play here. Um, we don't cause it, but we're certainly exacerbating a natural phenomena to the point where nature can no longer absorb all that we're putting into the atmosphere and the way we've changed our land use, um, deforestation, farming, and development. Uh, but we're, we've got to take this seriously, I believe, and, and move it forward. And it's we're seeing now the major environmental groups, the national leaders, and I've talked to most of them, they're never going to embrace nuclear, but they're not going to oppose it in the way they have in the past because when they look at the and, and argue and talk about the importance of climate change and the need to deal with climate change, there's really no other way to address that in the near future without nuclear. Uh, the international UN International uh, Climate uh, Panel has already called for some 400 new reactors to be built around the, the world in order to meet the COP, the latest COP uh, targets of 1.5% reduction of carbon. So there are already 440 under construction now around the world. That's a, almost a doubling of that number. And they don't see that. Those are the international scientists who say there's no way to do this just through conservation, just through renewables. They'll get better, 
We'll be able to store that energy eventually. They'll be more efficient. But right now they're not there, and our problems are coming at us pretty fast. So it's hard to think of nuclear energy these days without thinking of the Fukushima disaster in Mm -hmm. 2011. How would you respond to concerns about these types of risks? Well, that's what the Nuclear Regulatory uh, Administration is all about, is addressing these kind of concerns. And as many people know, um, Fukushima, the, the, the reactor itself did exactly what it was meant to do when the earthquake struck. It shut down. The problem was that they had co-located the backup generators in the same building as a reactor right there. So when the uh, tidal wave hit, that's what knocked it out. That's what caused the problem. At nine, after 9-11, long before Fukushima Daiichi, um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had identified that kind of a co-location as a problem and had told all the utilities that they had to move their backup generators to another building, to a separate building, on the same site but a separate building. So they've already anticipated, they had already anticipated that kind of a problem, and they're constantly doing that. I mean, you can never say never. That's irresponsible to say that something could never happen. There'd never be a problem. But in fact... This is the most regu- highly regulated industry in this country. And for good reason, it should be highly regulated, but it is. And our Nuclear Regulatory Commission is looked on as the gold standard from around the world. Um, so you mentioned that, you know, there should be a variety of, of um, types of energy that we're considering. Do you think nuclear energy can be a global solution, um, or is that something that that you see specifically towards the U.S., and what lessons can we draw from Europe for the U.S., given um, you know that Europe has tended to embrace nuclear much more? Oh, it's already going to be an international solution. India, China, Russia, they're all moving forward with nuclear reactors. I think Russia's talking about bringing one online every year or one every month. Uh, China is building a a number of them now. India has committed. They already have a lot of nuclear power. They're committed to more because they see the impacts of dirty air every day. Even if you move beyond the climate change issue so you don't get into a partisan discussion and say, look, we want to live longer. We want to live well. We want a quality of life that doesn't require us to wear masks when we walk down the street and stay inside during the daytime hours. Uh, So They are already moving. This is happening. And the interesting thing from this country's perspective, even if we don't bring any more nuclear reactors online, uh, already of the 40-some-odd reactors being built in China today, four of them are using what's called the Westinghouse Advanced Processing AP1000 technology, and that's accounting for 15,000 jobs in this country. There's a huge market there for component parts and things. This can be a big economic development tool for us, even if we ourselves don't take advantage of it, which I think would be foolish, but that's a decision that's going to be up to the states and to the regulatory bodies. Do you think this is a particularly opportune moment for nuclear energy, given what's been happening with the Paris Agreement out of COP? And, um, you know, what do you think are the risks if we pass up this opportunity? Oh, they're huge. I mean, the amount of carbon that will be released into the atmosphere if we were to close down our nuclear reactors is is enormous. I mean, you look at what happened in California. They closed the San Onofre nuclear reactor, and their carbon emissions went up 25% in that area. We can't afford that. We just can't afford that. The climate can't handle that kind of thing. And if we're going to reach the COP12 um, targets of the one5 Fahrenheit reduction in, in temperature, you're not going to get there without nuclear energy. It's just not. It's got to be part of the overall base. How big a part? That's up for the very to the various countries and the states to decide. And 
What CASE does is just try to give people the options. We have a new center that we're announcing, an online tool for people to go to and decision makers to go to to see what the impact of nuclear would be on their ability to meet the department, the Environmental Protection Agency, I should say, is um, clean power plan. And it will show them what their what their trade-offs are, what their what their opportunities are, what kind of a mix they could use, what it would mean if they didn't have nuclear, what it would mean if they brought on nuclear, and what it would mean if they if they have nuclear already and close it down. And that's the only way that people can can make good decisions if they have the whole range. There's a trade-off in any kind of of energy that we use. Um, people can find something wrong with all of it, including solar and wind. But um, you have to know what's the right balance. What, what are we willing to live with? What's the right balance for us? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the future of nuclear energy technology? Oh, it's moving ahead very rapidly. The big focus now on nuclear technology is the small modular reactors. An average reactor is about 1,000 megawatts or 1.1 megawatt. The smaller ones will be anywhere from 50 to 300 megawatts. They can be built much more quickly at less cost um, using less component parts, so they're easier to run. They can be moved to a site where they're needed and just popped down and turned on. And that means that has huge implications, particularly for places like Sub-Saharan Africa, but even in this country, in areas of our country in the West where you're not on the grid, you're not near any other form of power, but these things can run a, anything from a small town to a factory. So you've got a, a there's enormous potential there. The Department of Energy has uh, put aside substantial amounts of money now for research and development to bring this to the next stage. Um, there also there's a lot of work being done on alternatives to the kind of uranium we're currently using and um, molten salt processors, things like that. There, there's a lot of research going on because of the understanding that we have to address these issues of climate change and clean air. Um, so. To, to talk a little bit about your career, um, how do you think your your career in office and in public service has informed your perspective on energy and environmental issues, and in, in particular in relation to, to nuclear? Well, actually, I'd go back further than that. It was growing up on a farm and spending a lot of time outdoors and getting a very good understanding of man's relationship to nature and the way human activity can change for the good or for the bad. And then, of course, as I said, I was, uh, and then I was a countywide office holder when we put in the first uh, farmland preservation program in that county and the first mandatory recycling program in the state voluntarily. Um, I've just grown up with it. I've spent a lot of time outdoors. I had parents that loved going to the West, and we'd go to the West, do a lot of fishing, hiking, camping. And that's when you become really aware of how fragile, how how resourceful, how, how quickly Mother Nature can come back, but also how easily we can damage nature and all the different ways in which we are interrelated and dependent on nature. And, of course, I, as governor of a state like New Jersey, you really see it because we are the most densely populated state in the nation, and you could see farmland being eaten up every other day, which is why we were able to pass a, a billion-dollar bond issue to purchased uh, a million acres of open space, which when it's completed, that million acres, we will have voluntarily preserved 40% of our land mass. And already today, on a percentage basis, we have preserved more farmland than any other state. And that's all important to our quality of life. And it helps the state around the states around us because we're not producing as much carbon as we might have otherwise. Mm-hmm. 
And so do you think your your time at the EPA has informed your your perspective on nuclear as well? Oh, yes. I mean, everything along the way does. It gives you a better understanding of things. It gives you opportunities to delve deep, more deeply into issues and to visit places and see what's actually going on. Actually, the most... The most compelling way to get people to understand nuclear and to be comfortable with it is to take them to a reactor. Because once they see the level of protection, once they see the level of training of the, of the operators, it, it's amazing how they come away saying, wow, I didn't realize it was like this. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of different states, is, what are the siting issues in terms of siting different nuclear plants and even the small modular reactions? Do you see a lot of conflict coming out in, in those questions? Well, there certainly wasn't a, nearly as much in, in North Carolina, and I mean, in Georgia and South Carolina. What you find is that uh, in areas where you've had nuclear, and we did a poll earlier on that in, excluded people who worked at the reactor, but you had over 85 to 90% of the people in those communities saying, yeah, we'll take another reactor, because they understood it, they were comfortable with it, they know the economic benefits of having a nuclear reactor. They provide the average reactor uh, throws off about $430 million uh, annually to the state that they're in, $40 million to the community in which they're located, and salaries and benefits and bonuses, and, the, and also the, the purchasing and things that, that people do when they have some money. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a, it, they pay those jobs, pay on average 30% more than a similar job in that area would pay. So you see a once people get used to the idea, it's, it's lack of understanding. I mean, this generation, your generation, really probably knows it most from the uh, Simpsons, and that's not a good way to get information. <laughs> and then there's a, the concern, of course, Fukushima Daiichi. Uh, but even after Fukushima Daiichi, there was a national poll done by Gallup or one of them that said that still better than 50% of the American people felt that nuclear should be part of our energy mix going forward. And it, that, that's the important word is the mix. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So this is um, moving to a kind of broad question. Do you have any advice that you would give to students or those of us in the early stages of, of our careers? Well, it's to find your passion. <laughs> That's probably the best thing is find your passion and then find out where the decisions, where things are happening that most affect that. What is it you care about the most? What's important to you in life? Um, what makes you want to get up in the morning or, or deal with an issue? And then where are those, where is that are decisions being made that impact that, uh, and how then get involved in those? Find a way to have your voice heard. Find out more about it. Get more involved with it. Uh, it's the kind of thing that, in this generation particularly, quality of life has become a lot more important than for previous generations where it was all about the money, as if money somehow gave you a quality of life that you wanted. It can help, no question about it. I'm not denigrating the role of, of a decent salary. But on the other hand, getting time off to be with your family, getting to be able to to go outside and, and do things other than just think about your work day in and day out, working 24-7, that's important too uh, to the whole person. And so it's, it's as much about if you find a job about what you really care or an area, you never work a day in your life. And there's some good days and there's some not so good days, but they're all better than they would be if you were just grinding out to make a salary. And if you're lucky enough to find that, it's not always a, you're not always able to do that. I mean, you have to support yourself and you have to support your families. But the way to start is to find out what is it that you really, really enjoy doing. And the important thing to remember is it's, it's important to find out what you don't like 
as what you do like. And you will make mistakes along the way sometimes and find yourself in jobs that you think, uh-oh, this is not what I thought it was going to be or I don't like it at all. And that's fine. That's part of learning. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate um, you giving your time to this. Oh, my pleasure. The only other thing I'd say, you know, at least for me, I've always loved going up the learning curve. And I have to be afraid of changing jobs from time to time as long as you're learning something along the way. If that's what, if that's what you enjoy, you never get bored then. Right. Well, thank you. Okay. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.